Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Inside Music. I'm your host, James Shotwell, and on this week's episode, we're speaking with author, entrepreneur, and all-round badass, Adam Lopez. I've known Adam for a while. He's been featured on the Holix blog, and it was awesome to have him sit down for an hour-long discussion about his life and music. Before we get to the show, however, I need to tell you a little bit about our sponsor. Inside Music is only made possible by Holix, the leading digital distribution platform for independent artists and record labels alike. Whether you're looking to get your music in front of the press or you simply want to fight online piracy, Holix has the tools you need for success. For more information on Holix and the ways they can help you better your digital marketing efforts, visit www.holix.com. That's www.h-a-u-l-i-x.com. Okay, let's get to the show. We'll just, yeah. we'll just drop in. Yeah. <laughs> just come in randomly. It works here, you know? Yeah. As if you just, like, walked into a room and you and I were sitting there already. Like, conversation, halfway. yeah. Oh, you're here? Well... Oh, thanks for joining us. <laughs> thanks for joining us. I was about to ask this person all these odd questions about their existence. <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> and stuff. And stuff. You know, and all that other stuff that goes with existence. Um, but yeah, how are you doing today, man? Good, good. I'm doing well. You know, actually, on my way uh, to a show for one of our clients uh, in the city. So I'm in the van right now. So I apologize for any like background noise or anything. But hopefully, it's pretty clear on your end. No, no, yeah, it's crystal clear. Who uh, who are you going to cover tonight? Uh, Mike Naren. Okay. Okay. Yeah, he's down at Arlene's Grocery tonight. So we're gonna go check that out. Should be a good time. That's exciting. We're gonna talk about Mike Naren in a minute. Maybe we should just start there. I mean, we can go out of order. Why not? Let's start there. Yeah. Let's let's, let's, let's talk let's, about. Let's Mike be Naren. rebels. Let's let's be rebels. So Mike Naren is somebody that works with you through your management group. Now, can you tell us a little bit about how you met Mike initially? Well, I've known Mike for a really long time. Uh, we used to kick around Connecticut, playing in some local bands together, and then he. Um, <laughs> I hear Mike laughing. <laughs> and then um, he came into a band that. He used to fill in for a local band that I would play for, and then that's how we kind of got to know each other. So we've known each other for like seven or eight years. It's been a while. And then he was um, he left the local scene, I guess, to go play in Sparks the Rescue, which then he brought me in to manage them, and that was kind of where our relationship kind of took off from there. I I miss Sparks the Rescue. I love them dearly. Yeah, that makes two of us. That definitely makes two of us. I don't remember where I was the first time I heard that song about getting clean in the dirty south, but... <laughs> It changed my life, I think, a little bit because I was like, I didn't know bands that sounded like this could write such dirty songs. Oh yeah, absolutely. I love it. It's <laughs> just super gritty, super raw, huge. Yeah, band. it's so different than like what they went on to do later. When you hear that song, you're just like, this band could have went a completely different direction. They they really could have, you know. And I think Bob Becker and uh, everyone at Fearless did a good job, you know, kind of tailoring them to uh, to be successful. So, <laughs> uh, so let's talk about. So the band ended, and then did you approach Mike? Did Mike approach you? Was it always like he's going to go do his own thing eventually? Was Yeah, pretty much. We've been trying to put this project together for probably about three years. He had left Sparks the Rescue, and him and I had always known that we were going to do something together so we could explore kind of his solo career. And we ended up he ended up leaving Sparks the Rescue, and then we kind of dabbled in it for a little bit. Then he got a job playing bass for the Ready Set, and that's what he was doing up until he still – or he plays guitar now for the Ready Set. But he started playing bass. Now he's playing guitar, and he's – um in the intermittent he was doing some stuff with breathe carolina so now we have a few months off and we, re- we rolled his record out you know probably three months ago and now we're really just trying to hit the ground running with it 
That's exciting. Uh, now, does he have other shows coming up this fall? I mean, we might as well get a plug in now. It's the beginning of the show. Might as well fit in a plug. What what all does yeah. he have coming up so we don't get to it later? <laughs> as of right now, we um, we just have this one show in New York. We're kind of doing these selective one-offs um, to kind of test different markets and stuff like that. But he'll be out on tour with the Ready Set of the Outsiders Tour. So, uh, so that should be good. And then early next year, we're going to hit it hard again with uh, a bunch of other things we have coming up. Well, that's that's exciting. Now, let's let's turn the focus back to you for a little bit. I, I always look forward to talking to you because you're the only person I know who shares this passion for Wyclef Jean with me. Oh, thank you. So I would, I would like it's to... It's an acquired taste. It, it is, but I, w- I would like to start there because I'm t- you know, I love talking to all these people in the music scene, but so many of them are like, Blink-182 changed my life. And you, <laughs> you come along and throw out Wyclef Jean. So can you tell us about the Adam Lopez that discovered Wyclef Jean? <laughs> <laughs> when I, yeah, when I was at A and R, when I was 12 years old, you know, I just discovered him, and that was the rest is history. Um, no, when I was, um, it was the first unedited CD I had ever purchased, and I thought I was this crazy rebel for, you know, having the ability to do so. You know, we paid. I remember being in a, I think it was a Tower Records. I want to say me and one of my best friends were in there, and like I said, we were probably 11 or 12, and we had to have a guy in line buy us the CD because it had a parental advisory sticker on it. So when we got home, like him and I each got a copy, so we just played that CD pretty much till it wore out. <laughs> when do you think do people still do that do you still get stopped trying to buy parental advisory music if you're young do you think i mean i should hope so because i mean that's what it's there for but i mean it all i guess it depends on like you know i mean well whoever's buying cds in the first place that, that's <laughs> it, that's interesting enough but yeah um i, I guess it's at the uh it's at the you know discretion of the uh of the merchant, I suppose, or whoever's rigged you out. But I mean, I still get carded going into rated R movies sometimes, so I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've, that hasn't happened to me in a long time. That's interesting. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. It's just something I was thinking about the other day because I, I bought something on iTunes and it had that little red box that was like explicit. Explicit. And I was like, yep. That is so not a deterrent. Like the old sticker no, was huge, and you noticed it. Like you were like, yeah. "Oh my gosh, this must be filthy because there's a one inch sticker on it that says <laughs> yeah. so." But now it's just a little red box that, I mean, it could say anything. I don't even, I don't think most people even read it most of the time. It's just, eh. No, absolutely not. And the thing is, too, it's like, it's not really deterring anybody due to the fact that there's nothing that pops up when you download it saying that this is explicit. Like, you know, do you have, you know, permission to do this if you're underage or anything like that? So it's really just a little red box there that just takes up a little bit of iTunes real estate. But other than that, it's not really serving any real purpose. (laughs) (laughs) When I was little, my parents wouldn't let us buy parental, parental advisory music, but I remember I bought... Maybe that Wyclef album, definitely Blink 182's Enema of the State, and you could like oh, buy yeah. you could buy albums before they got the sticker. Like if you got it the week it came out, oh there, really? There was a chance that there might not be a sticker, but if it was like two weeks later, they all know, caught on. Yeah, they, they caught, some, <laughs> some some angry parent wrote Walmart a letter. Oh, for sure, absolutely, just flipping out. Yeah, we were talking the other day actually around the office about how when Godsmack came out, there's all this controversy about their first album, even though they didn't swear really. I mean, there might be one or two f bombs. Yeah, but it was more like a band called Godsmack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just stirred up the pot. Yeah, and now that that doesn't do anything these days. No, absolutely not. I mean, it's you know, it's all it's about shock and awe nowadays, and I feel like people are so desensitized to the fact that there's just so much out. So many outrageous things happening, you know, that it's like it's very hard to turn the heads of the public with something that's controversial. <laughs> um, the reason I kind of talked about the fact that I wasn't able to buy parental advisory music is because I know you and I share a little bit of a similar background in that we both have seen quite a few Christian rock bands in our days. Uh, yeah, I've seen a couple. <laughs> you told me when we talked last time that your first experience was seeing Switchfoot. Were you actually a Switchfoot fan? So we're, is young Adam Lopez listening to Switchfoot and Wyclef Jean? Is that... <laughs> 
Is that hysteria? I, I slowly phased out of Wyclef into this, you know, in high school, like when I was a junior in high school, I really tried to find my musical niche just as, you know, a consumer, you know, and it was really tough. And my girlfriend at the time really loved Switchfoot and I was really getting into like, um, you know, to, to rock, pop, pop rock, I suppose. And then I didn't even know they were a Christian act at the time. I found that out like four years later. And I was like, <laughs> oh, that makes sense, you know? So finally, um, this, my girlfriend was like, I really want to go see the show, this and that. So I ended up taking her um, on our anniversary and that's kind of how that started the whole spiral into going more of the <laughs> pop punk realm or pop rock realm. I remember those days when you couldn't always tell if a band was Christian. It was like they snuck up on you with their message. It, it, that's really what it was like. I feel like Amberlynn is kind of the same way too. Amberlynn's you know, like, the same way, definitely. It's, it's just gnarly rock and roll, you know, it's, that you find out there's like these, you know, these religious undertones. But I mean, it doesn't deter me at all. I think both those bands are absolutely incredibly talented. So I remember the first year I went to Cornerstone many years ago. It was like right after As I Lay Dying had come out. And there were all these people there that were like, that's a Christian band? Yeah. These guys, <laughs> As I Lay Dying, that name is a Christian name. And I was... <laughs> Yeah, I remember it was such a fuss, and it was so strange to me. I was like, I love that bands could do that. Nowadays, as soon as you mention anything, somebody will write an article and be like, I think they're talking about God, and you're outed right away. But back then, it was like, if you could get under the radar, like P.O.D. was an under the radar band, where people would buy their records and be like, oh, man, I think I got tricked into buying alternative (laughs) Christian rock. (laughs) (laughs) Like you walked walked under like that proverbial cardboard box with the stick in it. Yeah. You just walk, you grab the seat, just boom, someone pulls the string out, and the cardboard box just falls, and you're like, oh, man into a Christian band. I, I mean, right now. I've had that happen with me at concerts. I remember the first time I saw Four Today, they were opening for like Winds of Plague or something, and then in the middle of the set, he's like, who here knows Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior? And everyone in the show is just oh like, whoa, God. whoa, did we look at the tickets again? <laughs> <laughs> and he, all of a sudden, you're like, oh man, did I sign up for this? Have I been supporting the Christian faith by... <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> And yeah. it's yeah I, that I don't know that that happens anymore today, but it, it fascinates me. That was the early two thousands, a wild west for Christian rock. Music. Yeah, oh yeah, just it was it was crazy. <laughs> Martial law. Martial law. Yeah, that's back when like Tooth and Nail ran the scene too. So oh for sure. That yeah. was like how you could tell. Oh, they're on Tooth and Nail. Must be a Christian band. I feel like they were pioneers for that scene kind of yeah. religious rock and roll. You know, so- Solid State and Tooth and Nail. Yep. For a few years there. They were the, <laughs> I don't even, I mean, Face Down and there have been other labels, but those were definitely the two that were kind of like leading the charge into the mainstream. Like, no, Absolutely. Too. It, it's strange. I think, especially Solid State, like the bands, when Rise Records came along, I felt like they were definitely doing what Solid State had been doing for so long, but because they didn't have that Christian banner, it was like, oh. Exactly. And they had MySpace. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, plus, whenever you open it up to a wider demographic, that always helps. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, more people, big, bigger the pond. True, true. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you you mentioned this a little bit, but that that Switchfoot concert you've said before is that that was kind of your starting point. That was, yeah, absolutely. So you walked out of that show and you were just like, now I want to do this every night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pretty much. You know, it was a situation where I kind of just felt like that energy, and I was like, I want to be attached to this for a while. <laughs> And then you, did you see Switchfoot? Is this when you're in college already or are you in high school? I was in, uh, I was a sophomore in high school, I believe. Okay. So then you finish high school, you go to college and you're immediately like, this isn't for me. Yeah, pretty much. You know, I just kind of walked in and I did one semester and I just, I don't know, I wanted to find greener pastures. I feel like I didn't have the creative freedom there because it was so, you know, college is very regimented, you know, especially, you know, in 2010, you know, it's a little different than it is now. I mean, not drastically, but you know, it's being able to kind of really stretch your, creative legs in that situation and really try and find your niche but you know back then it's like you i mean nowadays probably still you have to um 
you have to take all your general education classes for the first two years and it kind of feels like you're just on this you know kind of monotonous track waiting to really get into your major and i just i don't know that wasn't really appealing to me and i kind of wanted to do my own thing and for you know all of our sakes it worked out obviously it'd be weird if we were having a conversation and we were like tell everyone how it didn't work out yeah (laughs) and you're like ah you know i tried it failed and now i went back to college but no it worked out it worked out for you and it's it's kind of a crazy story. I mean, if if you just tell it to somebody, it almost sounds Hello? like something. Are you there? Can you hear me? I lost. Yeah, sorry, I lost you. <laughs> oh no, that's fine. I'm back. Um, <laughs> all I was saying was that you know, it, it almost if I tell somebody your story or I write it down, I read it on paper how I've written it in the past. It almost sounds like something out of a movie. Like you, you're this kid who's like trying to find his place, and you realize college isn't for you, and it's almost like anything could happen now. And then the internet essentially saves saves you. <laughs> pretty much, yeah, pretty much Craigslist, I guess, saved me. But it's also very liberating, you know, coming out of something like that in a situation where, you know, you kind of feel like there's almost no strings attached. Oh, no. You there? Anything, you know, and the world is your oyster, you know, we're this bright-eyed and bushy t- bushy-tailed. Oh, yeah, I'm here. Okay, sorry. You're a little breaking Can up a little bit. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, you know, it's, like I said, it's, it's very liberating to kind of go into a situation like that, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and kind of just taking everything in stride and really, you know, having the world at your disposal. And that's really where I've kind of found my solace. And um, luckily, stumbled across the Craigslist ad that got me my first job in the music business. Yeah, you, you found a Craigslist ad around the same time there was a Craigslist killer. So I think you, I think you lucked out in that situation. <laughs> Are you there? I lucked out. I, I yeah. won the Craigslist lottery, so to speak, because I'm still alive. So yeah, you did yeah, win yeah, the I'm Craigslist. You, you won the Craigslist lottery, and you moved on to working Urban A and R at EMI. Can you? I, I know you and I have talked about it in the past, but I definitely want to give people an idea of what it was like even then, because it's only been a couple of years since you held that role. But the industry has mm. done a huge change since then. So can you kind of give us insight into when you started and what it was like then, and maybe even how it's evolved, how that role has evolved to today? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was a situation where it was a joint venture. And, um, you know, I was brought on by EMI in this joint venture and, you know, it was kind of crazy going in because I'd never really explored my urban roots since I was probably, you know, 14, 15 years old, you know, and it's a situation where I went into it thinking that there would be a lot more, you know, kind of hands-on creative things that went into it. But I ended up learning that, you know, I mean, it's the situation I was in, they were, they were very antiquated in the way they did things. You know, they were very, they were, I felt like they were always two steps behind and it was a situation where they weren't really, you know, embracing these new creative concepts that myself and a couple other ARs were really bringing to the table. And, you know, I, I just felt like I hit the ceiling really, really, you know, very shortly into my, my tenure there. And so then what happens in, in, in the mind of Adam Lopez? I mean, you're not that old at this point in the story, right? How, how old were you at this point? Probably 20... 20 21 maybe so if you'd went to college you'd still be in the midst of that college career exactly yeah i'd be towards the end of it yeah so you'd be in the midst of it and here you are realizing that already what you found as your new path wasn't working out so then what happens exactly so after that um i felt like i had you know in, in the year and a half i'd been there i kind of felt like it, i just i understood enough which obviously you know Obviously, there's tons to learn about the A&R world, but I felt like I had a good enough grasp as to where I knew what I wanted and I knew what I didn't want, you know, and at that point I had left and tried to explore the management field a bit and then got brought on to to be an A&R consultant for Island Def Jam, did that for about eight months, and then after that was when I really jumped into management 110%. Again, before, way before 25. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. That That was three years ago, so yeah. It's so crazy to think of because... A lot of the people that we see today who are kind of trying to start their, 
you know, their management company or their publicity company, they wait until they're out of college because they have that four years where they're trying to figure things out. They get out, they realize, oh crap, the industry doesn't have a job for me. I should start my own job. I, you almost have an advantage because you didn't go to college because you realized so fast that there, you had to make your own place. Especially the music industry, you know, it's a very forward thinking, you know, situation where it's like, you know, if you want to really find your niche, you really have to make it yourself because even with A&R and music industry jobs, it's really, really scarce, you know, so it's like even with an A&R, you know, it's like you're making maybe thirty five, $40,000 a year and there's no job security. When you sign that contract, they can let you go at any point in time. So, I mean, if you want job security, they're really, in a sense, make it yourself. You're gonna have to put up with a lot of stuff. You're gonna have to go through a lot of trials and tribulations. But I mean, at the end of the day, you're your own boss and you have your own freedom to call your own shots. Yes, and you are your own boss now. That's that's pretty awesome. How long have you been your own boss at this point? Uh, three years in uh, this August. So yeah, that's Love equal. It. That's equally awesome and terrifying. Yeah, it's likewise. <laughs> you know, people want that freedom, but I don't think everyone understands that when you get it, it's it's not as it's it's often intimidating. At least I found it's- it is. No, no, it's, it's very intimidating, you know, and it comes at a very, very high price, which I feel like people don't understand, you know, it's like, all my friends work jobs that are nine to five, you know, in their respective fields, but it's like, everyone's like, oh, you can just, you know, take time off and do this, or go do that, or do whatever you want, and it's like, I can, but it's also in the same, no, I can, I could work from 11 p.m. until 6 a.m., or 11 a.m. to 6 a.m., you know, mm-hmm. it's like, you make your own hours, but it's like, you're, everything that, you know, happens kind of falls on you, so you have to protect that, you know, to the best of your ability. Yeah, definitely. That's that's something I've really taken away from it is that there is that sense of freedom, but I feel like there's also a bigger sense of responsibility because when you have those nine to fives, you're part of a team. And if you're not able to do something, then the team can do it. But when you're on your own and you're just kind of out there in the wind, if something doesn't come together, that's on you. And it's like, you know, you have exactly. to, you have, like you said, it takes the long hours and stuff to make sure that things work where if you had a team of 20 people, you might have a little bit more freedom. Exactly, exactly. You know, it's a situation where it's like, you know, being 25, you know, and knowing what I do, you know, the what I do know about the music industry, you know, it's like, it's crazy now because we have a staff of, I believe, six people underneath me, you know, one partner and, you know, on down the food chain. But it's kind of crazy to know that I've been in the music industry. Realistically, you know, the real music industry for probably about five years, but it's like now I'm delegating responsibility to these people who are just coming into it kind of where I was at three or four years ago. So it's also very daunting, you know, that I'm not 35. I haven't been in it for 15 years. I've been in it for a solid five, but I feel like I've kind of, you know, hit a benchmark where I feel comfortable enough to be able to delegate those responsibilities. Do you think the way you manage your employees is similar to how you manage your artists or are they completely different? That's a very good question. Never been asked that before. Um, we give our employees a lot of freedom. So I feel like the, the employees have more freedom than the artists do due to the fact that, you know, we like to make sure that everything is done properly with our artists and make sure they have the proper gestation period and that everything is properly developed before we roll them out. With our employees, we're very, very forward thinking. You know, we, we never turn down any type of creative concept or idea or if someone has something that's not way out of left field we always listen to and entertain it you know we're not kind of just like oh this is coming from so and so forget it disregard it you know because i know that regardless if you've been in the music industry for 10 years you've been in for one day a good idea is a good idea you know and everything is worth exploring definitely definitely so what is the biggest lesson you've learned in the three four years now that you've been running a management company that it's impossible to do everything (laughs) that's really what it is because i mean a lot of people when they start off in the music business, they want to do almost everything, you know, and I feel like everyone has come across this, you know, they want to start a label, they want to do, you know, to be a manager, they want to be a booking agent, they want to have this one-stop shop for everything, you know, and it's like, and that's where I was kind of at, you know, and a couple of my mentors were like, you can't do that, you know, this and that, so, you know, and then eventually I've learned the hard way from having, you know, one or two companies collapse and not work out, you know, because I mean, it's not always an easy ride, it's, you know, for me, it's like, 
oh, worked at two labels, you know, and then started this management company and now we're here. It's like, no, there were a couple of ventures that did not work, you know, going back to, you know, even as early as my freshman year in college that I started that didn't work out. So, you know, you just can't do everything. You really have to concentrate your focus on things, you know, on, on your, your, your respective strengths. What do you think are your strengths? Like, you know, what, what are your biggest strengths and weaknesses? My biggest strength probably is the ability to, um, to network. I, li I like networking a lot and I really like putting people together who wouldn't normally be put together. I think that's one of my strengths that I feel like is overlooked a lot by probably by me, honestly, because it's a situation where it's like I enjoy putting people together on projects that make sense, you know, and it's like and I kind of think outside of the box in that respect, like whether it be anyone from a producer to a songwriter to a graphic designer to a music video director, I put people together that that are out of their comfort zone. And I really, really enjoy the product that comes out of that. And weaknesses? Weaknesses? Probably time management. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so tough because it's like even this far into it, you know, it's very, very tough, even with people to delegate responsibilities to. It's like the ability to stay focused on, you know, on multiple, multiple projects is very, very difficult and it gets challenging, you know, with every passing day. So it's really, I mean, I guess everybody in the world can say they wish they were better at time management. But for me, that's something I'm really trying to focus on going into the end of 2014 and starting 2015. Do you have do you have advice for people on that? I mean, you're, when we, you and I have talked before, we've talked about this time management thing. We're both the kind of people that almost have to segment out our chunks of our days like this is when we're going to work on this and this is when this is and this is when this is what like, I, you don't wake up and do that one day you have to get to that point so i don't know how what was your learning process like how have you learned to manage your time so far honestly learning to manage my time was just working myself sick to the point of you know just being physically sick and mentally sick i guess too you know it's like it it drains on you you know your brain gets you get fatigued and you're not calling you know you're not calling on the right shots and your vision's getting cloudy and it's a situation where it's like you're not operating on all cylinders you know it's like it makes more sense to do 12 hours of great work than you know 18 hours of mediocre work so really just learning that you know i was probably about 23 when i learned that and it's just you know i paid a high price for it because you know i beat my body up for a year and i just realized that i can't do that anymore <laughs> uh you you've written a book as well we should probably talk about it Yes, yes. We um, talk about everything else, but we, we never get to – I always forget about the book, and it's so weird because <laughs> I don't get a chance to talk to many people who have written a book, and I'm so happy that you have. So we should, we should talk about it. When did you write this book? I started at Indiegogo for it about a year ago, and it got funded luckily through help of some close friends and family. And it will be out the end of this month, early next month. So So, so close. So close. I know it's been very tough because I, you know, the Indiegogo, obviously I'd never written a book before, so I don't really know what went into it. So I kind of just jumped into it, you know, and learned on my own. But obviously it's a very, very long process, you know, so I had to keep emailing everyone and being like, listen, it's coming. Just, you gotta, you gotta bear with me on this. Cause I, you know, I've, I've literally, I've, I told them, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm writing it and getting it edited and working through it, you know? So it's my first kind of offering as an author, I suppose, if that even, if that makes sense. But yeah, so everyone's really cool. All the donors and everything and everyone who's pre-ordered it has been absolutely fantastic in the process. And I'm very excited to read it. <laughs> them read. I'm, I'm excited to read it myself and see how it goes, but I'm more excited for them to, to, you know, to read it and get their feedback on it. So did you, did you have anything written when you decided to launch a Indiegogo for it? Like what, get, walk me through the process. Where did it start? It started a while ago when I had posted, posted links on my Twitter, I believe, to a blog that I started when I was in probably 10th grade. And um, the blog is still floating around online somewhere. So there's a blog that I wrote all through high school that only maybe me and like five other people have ever read. So I shared it on Twitter one day, the link. Uh, I got a lot of people being like, oh my god, this is really fantastic. You know, you should kind of turn this into something a little longer. I want to read more. I'm kind of bummed that it, it had to end. You know, so I was like, you know what, maybe I'll just, you know, put, put all this together and, you know, put my current experiences together and put it together, you know, between the pages of a book. And that's kind of where it started. 
Were you nervous to do the Indiegogo? I've seen a few people try to do books in the last year in the industry, and they seem to be turning out pretty well. But I mean, it's it's always risky to put yourself out there in that respect, especially in a book where you're just like, listen, I have stories to tell, but it's going to cost you. Exactly. It's if anybody really wants to hear them, you know. And luckily, <laughs> luckily, we had we had enough people that did, you know. And it's a situation where the book is very personal, you know. It goes through a lot of a lot of crazy things, you know. It pretty much revolves around me trying to go through the music industry and come up, and me dealing with you know being in love for the first time and going to college and all this crazy stuff so i'm super excited for everyone to, to read it i think it'll be good that description sounds like every early 2000s like emo rock album that's exactly what it is coming up in the music industry i went to college i had a girlfriend it probably doesn't work out um yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it, it goes it goes down that road absolutely you know but it's done you know it's done very well I, I like to think it's done tastefully you know and it's done you know with a lot of emotion behind it you know it seems very authentic when i read through it but i mean hey i wrote it and i thought those things and i lived them so of course it's going to seem authentic to me but hopefully it reads that way uh to the consumer is that something you think you want to keep doing i mean do you want to be adam lopez the author on top of everything else honestly it was a situation where i'd created it and i wanted to just do do it just for myself you know it's like mm-hmm. it was kind of a bucket list thing and there's no time like the present so that's kind of it if it goes well then we'll see what happens but if not you know at least, at least i can say i did it so <laughs> <laughs> how long is it i mean i mean it's done at this point so yeah it's short it's like 140 pages i want to say paperback so nothing too crazy that's i mean that's still a book i mean <laughs> that's true yeah it's not like a pamphlet so that's good <laughs> i know i know a lot of bloggers who haven't even read that many pages of a book this year let alone <laughs> written them so i think i think you're doing away and that's not even a slam against bloggers people just a lot of people who are into music don't read as much as they should <laughs> that's very true you know I, I feel like it's kind of you know even while the ebook's out and you know literature being at everyone's disposal so readily i feel like it's something that should you know that that should be consumed more you know more frequently because you know it helps build the vocabulary especially when it comes to people in the music industry to make you more eloquent and succinct and you know i think uh, i think reading's overlooked by a lot of people especially uh, the younger group nowadays so do you think people will i mean what do you hope people take away from this book i mean if they if it changes their life or they get some cool quotes out of it i'm i'll be super excited about that you know if they use it as a coaster i'll be excited about that too you know either way as long as they took the time to at least you know go to their mailbox and open the envelope it came and at least look at the front back cover and put it on a bookshelf that's more than <laughs> Did you, uh, have you thought to yourself about... In all honesty. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm excited. I'm excited to read it. I haven't read it yet, obviously. I'll send you a copy. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, definitely. I will definitely tear through it. I think it's it's an important thing to do, and people don't share these stories enough, but I'm curious. Is there maybe a story or a passage from the book that you hadn't really thought about that much until you were writing the book, and then you realized what a big event it was for you? Oh, absolutely. You know, there, there's, I think the whole book, I'd probably say 50% of the book is based on stuff like that, you know, because obviously from a journalist perspective, as you would know, you know, you kind of open this little, you kind of go down this little rabbit hole when you have this one little idea and then it just manifests into something that becomes from, you know, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. You're back. Um, all right. Yeah. I kind of lost our place, but we can, we can kind of pick up there. That's fine. Don't worry about it. We'll, For sure. We'll just drop back in all out of Yeah, of course. We, we hit a technical difficulty or whatever. <laughs> That's perfectly okay. We can move on to some other stuff. So you're in New York City right now, and you're you're going out with Mike today. I'd like I did want to talk a little bit about your your daily routine. I mean, you just finished the book, so that's no longer part of the daily everything you have. To, well, I guess it probably still is to some extent, but like yeah, with all the all the administrative stuff. <laughs> so what's your what's your day to day like right now? Um, 
you know, it depends. When I'm in when I'm in the city, it's much different than when I'm in Connecticut. You know, right now I'm coming from Connecticut, going to New York, and it's um, you know, it's a situation where luckily it's it's kind of a crazy time right now because a lot of my friends are home from Warp Tour and everyone's off. So I'm trying to put in FaceTime with all of them and see them before they all head back out. But a typical day, you know, it's a situation where it's like wake up and um, you know, we take usually I call one, one, um call the partners up, do a morning call you know, go through, everyone does their work for the day. And then at night we have a team call to kind of go over ideas and concepts as to how we're going to, you know, attack this week. And then at night we have another wrap up call probably around 10 30 or 11 and then work till probably about five or six in the morning. That's crazy. Mm, it's a, it's quite the day. It's not exactly a typical work schedule. No, not at all. Not at all. But I enjoy it, you know, and it's like, I feel like I'm a nocturnal creature anyway. You know, I enjoy working at night far more than I do during the day, just due to the fact that I feel like there are less distractions, you know, and there's something about, I guess, nightfall that is more creative. Well, you have the book coming out this fall. What else? And you have, you know, you're working on Mike, you're working on Mike's career right now, but what are some mm-hmm. big things you have coming up this fall? What are you, what are the goals you're working towards before the end of 2014? We have a, actually we have a really great pop project coming out uh, next Wednesday, which we're super excited about. So I can't say anything about it right now because we're kind of doing this uh, Beyonce-esque, just kind of drop everything release and seeing what happens. So there's going to be a, video, a music video. There's going to be you know a single out on iTunes, on Spotify, all that good stuff. All this great marketing and branding that we had a fantastic team put together. So that's going to drop on Wednesday, and I'm super excited for that to come out. So that's really where my sights are set right now as far as short term. But as far as long term goes, you know, really just kind of set our sights on already you know we're already in like the second quarter of you know of planning things for next year you know as far as war for tour goes and you know it looks like we're going to be doing a south by southwest showcase this year which we're really excited about so there's a lot of really great things uh you know on the burner coming down the pipeline so i'm excited about it yeah i mean it definitely sounds like you've you've got a lot going on in the coming months you're always you're always somebody that always seems to have like a dozen new things to tell me each time we talk. It's better. Like, well, I, 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 you, I you've always you've also gotten rid of a few that we talked about the time before, where you're like, yeah, I decided that isn't gonna work. Yeah, it gets tough. You know, I always it's it's always great to you know I guess maybe this is the entrepreneurial sense of me, but I always enjoy starting new ventures, kind of testing the market and seeing how they go. You know, and some go really well and some take off and some don't you know do anything at all you know but it's like it's that ability to try and be familiar with a new market in a new demographic in a new industry you know that really really keeps me going you know I, I like learning and I enjoy learning about different facets of different industries and you know and growing not just as a manager but as an entrepreneur and you know business owner as well definitely one of the things I'm trying to focus on this fall with the blog is and I haven't really told a lot of people this but we're really going to talk to a lot of founders and we're going to do a lot of entrepreneurial push kind of we're going to talk to the people from bands in town and this is my jam we're talking to you now oh, that's and fantastic that, that's kind of like that's a spirit that I really want to embody through what we're trying to do in the blog right now and I don't know I feel like music is at a point right now where there is a huge entrepreneurial space that hasn't been filled yet I can't tell you everything I don't know what it is everything that needs to fill that space but I don't think people seem to realize that there there's never been a more perfect time to have an idea to try to bring to market right now I, I completely agree. You know, it's it's almost like music industry right now is kind of a blank whiteboard with a lot of the labels, you know, kind of trying all these crazy things. And, you know, it's like people, for example, something came across my desk and everyone was reading about um, how, the, how labels are going to start releasing albums on Friday to try and combat piracy. And I was like, this, you are so far behind what's even happening that it does it's it's laughable you know it's like labels are talking about releasing albums on friday to combat piracy even though piracy is at the lowest it's ever been at something like nine percent of albums are pirated because everyone's streaming so now you're going to change your whole business model uh, over something that's already you know 
antiquated, which is piracy, and roll these records out with something, you know, to try and gain more traction. You know, it's like, why not invest more money into pushing it in the UK where piracy is the lowest it's been in years and has ever been, where they have the strictest piracy laws. You know, it's like, I don't know, I feel like labels, I feel like the answer a lot of the time is right under their nose, but they're just too close-minded to check it out. I like to imagine that there's just a really big suggestion box and the ideas that would have worked in 2004 have just been buried under years of other and they're things. Finding, they're finding those now. Yeah. yeah, they're just like, man, did you know that Joe from accounting talked about this piracy thing in like 2004? <laughs> we should look into this. That's exactly, what, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, they're looking into it now. They're like, oh man, well, this is, this is completely useless. Yeah, I don't know if there'll ever come a day when... I don't know if it's possible for major labels to kind of make the leap to present day in terms of some of those things because they're so far behind that in order to even catch up to a label like a run for cover or somebody smaller that's able to change very quickly, it's going to take a, like an, a massive overhaul that a release date change can't solve. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I completely agree. You know, it's almost a situation where they're too far gone because you have to think about it. You know, the way a hierarchy a label works is you have senior vice presidents and stuff who are some are young you know in their early 30s but some are in their mid 50s you know and it's like i feel like it's if there's any time you know it, it's now for indie labels and smaller labels to kind of i guess rise up for lack of a better way to put it and kind of take take a part of that market you know it's like because as of right now indie labels own uh, the greatest market share they have in history you know and it's a situation as to where you know with there being th three major labels now as opposed to there were four three years ago you know, it's like everybody's clamoring for market share, and I feel like indie labels have a better chance now than ever to really try and attack that and get their own just because, you know, major labels are so far behind in their thinkings that are ongoings. There we go. All right. Okay, so I, what was the question? Okay, I, the uh, question was, uh, did you ever see yourself – One of the, something – a lot of the management companies I've been talking to recently, they, they tell me about this big dream of becoming basically a one-stop shop. They all want to be a management oh. company, a publicity company, a booking agent, and a record label. Is that something that you think is a good idea? Is that something you're going to do yourself, or is that – are you over – are you putting too many pokers in the fire, so to say? I'll be honest. I have zero interest in doing anything <laughs> that involves booking or <laughs> – you know, or anything in that space. I, I did it when I was a lot younger, and it's just an absolute nightmare. And I've no, you know, it's just there, there's a lot of there's a lot that rides on that, you know. And it's like there's that's really kind of direct to consumer, you know, kind of work where it's like you have to sell people on these acts, and you know that you have a lot of time and energy invested in, and then you know selling it to promoters is just a whole nightmare. So I would never want to do any booking, but I mean, a label probably not, just due to the fact that I know there's a lot of stuff that goes into that as far as you know, creating this great brand and things like that. Like maybe partnering with a label or doing some type of joint venture might be, but honestly, I think management is really where we're going to keep our focus. See, I think that's smart. I, I think people try to, I understand the idea of trying to be an all-in-one-stop shop, but sometimes the reasoning people give me are bad. Like so, someone the other day was telling me that they think the reason that people should do all-in-one shops is because if you have a manager, a booking agent, and a uh, you know, a publicist, there's downtime between the three, you know, one's waiting on the other and the other's doing this. But I think unless you have somebody that has that special set of skills, you're, you know, you're kind of hurting yourself more than if you're, you know, you have somebody that maybe has to wait a couple hours to get a form. Exactly. You know, it's a situation, it's a situation where it's like, even if you have one manager who's fantastic, you have to really put a team together of the best people in the entire industry. All the best people in the industry are, are trying to fuel their own efforts. You know, it's like you want to get the best booking agent. They're either over at CAA, ICM, the agency group, anywhere like that. You know, and it's like you're really going to grab one of those guys to go over and work for your boutique agency and try and make this massive conglomerate of just one-stop Walmart, you know, 
artist management, it, do, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like, obviously we have like, we have a PR department, you know, it's like, so we stopped outsourcing our PR just because, you know, outsourcing, you know, public relations and stuff like that is, gets very costly and, you know, it's a better way to, you know, I'd rather just hire someone in house to do it. And that's what we've done over the past six months. And it's worked out fantastic. You know, everyone, everyone has done a great job, you know, kind of with that transition. But like I said, a one-stop shop, I feel like is not something that I feel like it's this, you know, it's almost this utopic kind of concept. And I mean, if someone can pull it off, then more power to them. But I mean, I feel like it's almost like plan B is distracting from plan A at that point. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Plan A distracting from plan B. It's you're overextending yourself, especially because a lot of these places want to do it when they start. They're like, we want to open and just do everything. It's impossible. Yeah. I mean, it's, hey, if someone, like I said, if someone can pull it off, the more power to it, you know, if they can get this great team together, then obviously I will support 110%. But it's like, you really have to learn how all these other ancillary industries work in depth before you can hire people to do those jobs. <laughs> Let me ask you this. And you gave me such a good answer last time, and I'm excited to do it again this time. But what is your current message of advice to people who want to work in the music industry? To be, <laughs> to be honest, I mean, it'd be a situation where it's like, to just go for it. Take as many internships as you can, you know? And I know you asked me last time we had spoke um, about college versus not going to college, you know, this and that. And I gave you the analogy about swimming, um, which which is one of my favorite analogies, but I feel like it's true. You know, it's a situation where if you're, if you're going to go to college, you're going to read a bunch of books on how to swim. And if you go right into the industry, you know, you're going to peg at the shallow ends and wade around for a little bit, but eventually you will learn how to swim. And once you're out of college, you kind of just get thrown to the deep end. And, you know, people tend to struggle a lot of times because you just don't have that real world experience, which I feel like is essential to succeed, you know, and there are so many people who will come out of college, you know, with, uh, with, with even bachelor's or master's in music industry, which I feel like is almost, I don't know. I feel like it's almost counterproductive. You wasted five years of your life reading about the music industry when a lot of other people out there have been working very diligently to get where they are, you know, but I mean, to each his own, right? You know, I respect that, that, uh, that thirst for formal education, you know, and I, I don't knock it at all. And if it works out for them, then Godspeed. <laughs> I, I like that phrase. Godspeed. That's a good way to put it. I, I agree though. When I, you know, a lot of people I've noticed that get out of the music industry, even if they get an internship or out of the music industry, out of college, as soon as they get an internship, sometimes they realize how in over their head there is. Cause your analogy is so great. Cause you can read every book you want on the music industry, but unless you can apply it in a real world situation, then it doesn't really mean that much. All right. I, I do have to ask you this before we're done. Because I've been asking in every podcast because I can't get, I'm still stuck on it. You ever get asked a question by somebody and it just sticks with like you don't maybe you don't have the answer right away, but for like the next three or four weeks, like it just pokes at you, like it's in the back of your brain absolutely. and you're like, Why couldn't I answer that? Yeah, so, absolutely. I did an interview back in July with this wonderful website called the Heavy Metal Duchess, and she was so nice and so kind. And then at, at the end she goes, You have all these projects right now and you have so much going on. What is I'm going to change it to your name. What is Adam Lopez doing in five years? What is Adam Lopez doing in five years? Well, hopefully, still still in the music business. You know, it's a situation where I know, I, I, well, I know it's very fleeting. You know, and obviously, in five years, I'd love to be, you know, in a situation where I'm, I have more freedom creatively, you know, financially, as far as delegating responsibility to projects and stuff like that. You know, it's a situation where in five years, I want to be comfortably, I guess, comfortably acclimated to my surroundings as a manager and entrepreneur. I feel like that's my ultimate goal in life, you know, because everyone kind of sees success as being so elusive, you know, in a way of once I hit this benchmark, I have become successful. But I've learned over the past few years that once you've learned to incorporate this sense of entrepreneurial spirit into everyday life and have it coexist with your friends and family and being able to 
balance is found, you know, in that aspect, I really feel like I want to have that balance nailed down, you know, as complete as possible um, in five years. That's a good response. You answered it so much quicker than most people do. Most people are just like, oh, come on. <laughs> like you said, it's so fleeting that most people are like, I hope I still have <laughs> well, yeah, my job have in to, six months. A, a long term. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. You do. You do. It's just in this industry, it seems so many people are hesitant to do it. All right. So all technical, all technical issues aside, it's been good getting you to catch up with you again. I know that you're so crazy busy that this is probably the only way that we could have a conversation most of the time. <laughs> yeah. no, the, the, uh, the, the pleasure is absolutely all mine. Thank you for having me. Uh, oh, no, man. It's always great to have you on the site and on the show. And hopefully we can do it again. Hopefully we can actually meet up and just do it in person at some point, maybe over coffee. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, before I let you go, as always, do you have any closing thoughts, observations, words of advice, motivational statements, anything to say to our readers audience i guess this is listeners we're doing a podcast listeners oh my <laughs> god yeah that's uh, honestly no i mean like like i said before i appreciate you guys having me and i'm looking forward to everything that this blog and you know and you have going on in the future you know i think there's a very bright future ahead for holics and everyone involved in the project so i'm looking very forward to it uh, i appreciate it man you have a good time with mike naren tonight we'll tell send him our hellos we'll have to get mike on the show to maybe tell us about transitioning to becoming a solo artist sometime absolutely i look forward to it all right great man have a have a good evening you too. Take care, James. Yeah, See ya. Bye.